Buddhist Geeks Discover the Emerging Face of Buddhism. Episode 221 No System Exists in a Vacuum. We're joined again by yoga and Buddhist meditation teacher Michael Stone, this time to look at Buddhism as a system, one that's inexorably intertwined with others. This is part two of a two part series. Buddhist Geeks is supported largely by the generosity of our listeners. If you like what we're doing, please consider making a one-time or monthly recurring donation by visiting BuddhistGeeks.com forward slash donate. So as I was reading one of your books, you were describing the historical evolution of both Buddhism and yoga, which is something that we explored together. And you wrote something that really struck me. You said, no system is created or practiced in a vacuum. And in some ways, you're saying that is what I would consider a very postmodern perspective on the nature of systems themselves, how systems are these sort of invisible organizing patterns. And this type of awareness, to be able to say something like this, to me, I haven't seen much awareness of that in the traditions themselves there's some kind of proto-postmodernism in people like Nagarjuna and things like that, obviously. At the same time, to say that these systems were not created in a vacuum, there's something else in that that speaks to me more of the wisdom of the West, this sort of postmodern philosophical perspective. I don't want to go completely into the philosophical, but I, as you were mentioning earlier, we can't really in some ways, separate our language from our understanding or experience of what's going on. We can drop into that pre-linguistic mode, but then we always have to come back and interpret and understand what we've experienced, even if it was below the level of language. Mm -hmm. And so I was wondering if you could say a little bit about what the implications are of recognizing that all of these different wisdom systems and traditions, Buddhism, yoga, everything really, has evolved in concert with certain cultural patterns and conditions. What does that mean for us as practitioners in the 21st century? That's a great question. When I went back and read the Pali Canon and tried to read it as best I could from beginning to end, one of the things that struck me was that when I first heard the Buddha's story via Hermann Hesse, <laughs> I always had this idea of somebody who left home and wandered around in forests. And actually, when I read the Pali Canon, I was really fascinated by the way the Buddha left home and went to the largest city that he could find, which is at a time where cities were growing in India. And actually, some of the first cities on earth were in the Gangetic Plain at that time. And this reminds me a little of Bob Dylan, you know, leaving Minneapolis or Minnesota, wherever he was, and going to New York City. And the Buddha used this term a lot, the city, and creating a flourishing city, and enlightenment being like rediscovering a city. And he was always engaged in the social, political, and uh, power dynamics of his sangha. And to me... I think that's something we need to continually revisit because our lives happen in a social and ecological and economic context. For example, last year we watched a hole in the Gulf of Mexico spewing oil 
day after day, week after week, month after month. This year, we're watching Fukushima Daiichi nuclear power plant reactor number three still out of control. And these bring up a really important issue, especially for us younger Buddhists, which is that our stories about reality that we're learning how to see through in our meditation practice also have to be applied to the natural world, to our economic lives, to our environmental lives. Because the stories we have for how much electricity we need, for how much oil we need, the stories we have socially about what creates a meaningful life, these really need to be changed. They need to be updated. And so in the West, and I would say globally, it's time to put the Dharma to work, not just in our inner lives, but to see through the inner life also and to see that it's inseparable from our social and ecological lives. And maybe what Buddha nature might mean for us nowadays is not just the capacity to wake up as individuals, but the capacity to have a much broader imagination as a culture, as a society, so that we can reimagine how to live life in a way that is less violent and less greedy and more compassionate, not just individually, but also socially. And so I think that if we say the Dharma is in concert with its environment, right now the environment doesn't need people sitting in caves. Mm. We don't even have that many caves left. I think they're mostly filled with graffiti and shopping carts, you know. I think what we really need is a practice that helps serve rivers and air quality and our oceans, as it also does our, our human heart. Both are important, the inward and the outward. We have no choice, I think. Interesting. And this is a topic, of course, that is very, there's a lot of charge with this topic. Just as you were describing this important call to action, this call to be involved, not just in the inner world, but the outer world, I was thinking of my own relationship to this question. And I can see that at certain times I've been really complacent or feeling kind of paralyzed turning away from the outer world and, and sort of preferencing the inner experience and part of it being because it's just so overwhelming to consider. And then I've also seen uh, in myself also this tendency to think that I have it kind of figured out and approaching problems from a certain perspective. And, and this is kind of embarrassing to see, but I have the answer. Let's just go out and do this. Let's change the world. This is what's needed. A type of arrogance and a lack of respect, actually, for the amazing complexity of some of these systems, these ecological yeah. systems, these human systems, these political systems, these economic systems. Uh, we talked about systems, or this question started as a question about systems. Mm -hmm. And just to recognize that from that perspective, uh, systems dynamics are incredibly complex. So, I see both of these tendencies, and I'm wondering what you think of that, because I suspect you've probably wrestled with the same issues in your own practice and in your own engagement with the world. Yeah, in the uh, Buddha's sermon called the Aryapariyasana Sutta, the Buddha says that one of the reasons why people can't wake up is because they are in love with having a viewpoint, or they're delighting in having a story. 
And it's kind of the fixed or rigid viewpoint we have about things that creates suffering. And so in terms of systems, you know, this is true at an individual level, but it's also true at a social level. So one of the things we know about the BP disaster is that, you know, we're addicted as a culture to oil. And when an addict's supply gets lower, the addict takes risks and bigger risks to keep its story going. What happened in the Gulf of Mexico is kind of a story about gambling. It's about taking greater and greater risks because we're losing our supply. And so a Buddhist analysis of that is also seeing that, you know, what we're addicted to at bottom is not oil. It's a story. It's a belief system. It's a narrative about uh, what we think is meaningful. So, you know, that, that's one perspective. And the other is that, you know, the Dharma is not going to save the world alone. <laughs> Getting everybody to sit and meditate is not really going to save the world. I, I think we're at a time right now where, as Buddhists, we need to be able to converse with neuroscience, with economists, with environmentalists in their language. And that will change the language of Buddhism in the West. And I think that that's a really good thing, and it's a scary thing. And so I think that's really, really important, and I think it's starting to happen. I mean, it's happening in the sciences for sure. You know, I hope that something like the Buddhist Geeks Conference, as an example, is a place where we as younger Buddhists can recognize how complicated systems are and that in order to have dialogue with other systems, we need to let go of our language mm. so that we can have good conversations with those other systems. It's really essential, I think. Well, thanks for plugging the conference. I'll make sure and uh, send your, <laughs> your check out immediately. <laughs> no, no, it's a really... It's a really fascinating point that you bring up about being willing to drop our own language or being fluid around these other types of systems. I think in some ways that's what I meant earlier by talking about the chauvinism or the the narrowness of thinking that we can sometimes get into around, for instance, Buddhism as a system or Buddhism as a, a grand narrative that you, you used that term before, that there's some way in which we can get, of course, attached to the things that have been so beneficial and transformative to us. And I know thats it's a little dangerous to say that, given that I run my whole livelihood's connected to a program called Buddhist Geeks. And yet, I feel like it's so important, too, what you're saying around being willing to drop or let go of a little bit some of the things we're most familiar with, with regards to Buddhism. Yeah, I mean, especially when we see in our own meditation practice that there is no Buddhism. <laughs> yeah, where is the Buddhism? And I have a funny feeling about it because I created this sangha in Toronto called Center of Gravity because we wanted to create a secular organization where people of different backgrounds can practice. But at the same time, you know, to be honest, Vincent, in my own life, I like keeping, you know, my main practice right now is Zen practice with Enkyo Roshi in New York City. And, and I also practice in the Vipassana tradition. And I like keeping those really separate. Mm. I actually like teaching in a way where I'm integrating different lineages. But in my own practice, I have no problem keeping them separate. And I like keeping them separate. And I like the different languages in each tradition because I think there's a kind of richness in that. So 
I want to be clear that I'm, I'm sort of not anti-tradition in any ways or saying that, you know, we need a whole new language for Western Dharma. I think lineage is important and I think there's a place for each system to be able to drop underneath its own system to converse with others. And this happened last year, last summer, there was a symposium on engaged Buddhism that Bernie Glassman created where I spent a week. And it was really interesting when certain subjects came up, like, for example, there was a panel on food and how, you know, people in their 50s and 60s were saying, oh, you know, we need to feed every single kid at school and this should be a, a vision of a dharma where everyone's fed. And the young people in their 20s and 30s were saying, well, it's not just about feeding people, but it's about the kind of food we're feeding them. Is it organic food? Is it filled with corn syrup? You know, And it was this interesting moment where you could see how the issues that the younger generation were interested in had more nuance and complication in them. And that there was an ability to kind of drop Buddhist terminology and talk in the language that Michael Pollan would use about food rather than what, you know, some Zen master would say about food. <laughs> and I found this quite fascinating, this ability of people to go back and forth between Buddhist terminology and contemporary postmodern language or pop culture language. And I think this is fantastic to be able to do both. Yeah, it's so fascinating. I mean, it seems like part of the reason, for instance, my generation might have more fluidity with that is because I can just see that we didn't start our spiritual paths off in India uh, into <laughs> completely new. We didn't have to kind of take on that entire new culture. And most of my teachers are first generation Western teachers. Mm -hmm. And they've done so much to make it accessible to translate it in a way that's meaningful and at the same time I can see you know that there's no way that having spent 10 20 years practicing in Asia with Asian teachers in completely different cultures that they haven't in some ways had to really buy into those systems at a level that I for instance just because I've never done that don't have to and it's not saying there's anything wrong with them it's just saying mm -hmm. I can see maybe some cultural blind spot. And then, of course, the interesting question is, what blind spots does my generation have? Yeah, and we, and we won't know until someone points them out from the, the following generation. Until those dang kids come around and point them out. <laughs> yeah, and at the same time, you know, just to defend the Dharma a little bit, is that I think every good system has something in place to take care of the shadow of its system. Like an autoimmune yeah, system. and you talked about Nagarjuna, or we can use Dogen as an example of people that have taken their tradition and turned it on itself. Yes. In order not just to be clever, but to point out that whatever system you're in, it creates a shadow. Yes. So the, I think what you're pointing to then is it's not always the case that we need to drop the system or get rid of the system, but rather the system itself can be used to look at itself to kind of become self-aware in a certain sense. Yeah, I mean, and also, you know, the most fascinating thing in meditation is to see how as we start to have deeper concentration practices and see patterns of thought as they're constellating and then falling away, as the mind starts to dissolve, just at the point 
that it's starting to let go of itself, we create a formula about it. We create a new theory about it. We create a new personality around it. And in a way, as meditators, maybe especially in retreat practice, this is what we're watching all the time, that every time something old starts to dissolve, there's such a strong pull to create a new formula around it, a new story about it. It would be great if we can also see social structures in this way, too, that every time a social structure starts to dissolve, there's such a strong pull. Like, for example, when the financial system failed uh, in the United States the past couple of years, we just started throwing so much public money at it to keep it going, you know. So I think what's happening is, is that, you know, environmentalists and economists are saying to Buddhists, well, what do you have to offer? You know, what can you have to offer the material world right now? Yes. And I think we need to really step up and develop a language where we can offer something real, a real analysis and diagnosis and practical help so that the Dharma has something to say about suffering in the world. And I think that that's where the West and these Eastern traditions are really going to thrive together. Join us for the fourth annual Buddhist Geeks Conference, hosted in partnership with Mindful Cyborgs and Shambhala Sun from October 16th through the 19th in beautiful Boulder, Colorado. This year's conference will be exploring the convergence of Buddhism with modern culture and technology through informative keynote presentations, idea-packed TED-style talks, self-organizing community dialogues, and contemplative workshops and practice periods. This year's list of presenters includes the world's most quantified man, Chris Dancy, abbot of the village Zendo in New York City, Roshi Pat Enkyo O'Hara, and pragmatic Dharma provocateur, Daniel Ingram, as well as many others. For more information and to register, visit BuddhistGeeks.com slash conference. After nearly a year in private beta, the Buddhist Geeks Network is now open for any independent practitioners who want to engage in interdependent practice. You can find out more about the Buddhist Geeks Network by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. And if you'd like to join the community and join us in regular social meditation practice or other events that we host there in the network, all freely offered, you're very welcome to do so, again, by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. Love to see you there.